0: Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is the fifth and final part of our parenting class. Today, you'll learn about striking the balance between oversight and independence. Although many parents today think their children are At risk of kidnapping and other terrible crimes. In fact, our society is much safer now than it has been in decades. The tendency to protect our children at all times has resulted in a culture of quote unquote safetyism that leads to ill preparedness when children grow up and move out of the house. On the opposite side, chronic neglect or toxic stressors result in adults who are likewise unable to cope with and overcome the complexities of adult life. In this episode, we'll take a close look at the statistics, but also in the Bible at the young David and how we can learn some evergreen lessons about parenting our children today from how he was raised. In the end, we want to do our best to prepare our children for the road ahead so that they can be their best for God and others. Here now is episode 329, Parenting Part 5, Balancing Oversight, with independence. We're looking at balancing oversight with independence, and I want to begin by discussing the very uplifting subject of child abduction. (laughs) Just kidding, it's not uplifting at all. It's It's a horrible subject, but it drives a lot of paranoia in our country. And it's something that we have facts and figures on, and I want you to be aware of them so that you know what's realistic and what is in our heads. So a lot of this material, as with before, I'm pulling on the coddling of the American mind, but in this case it's chapters 8 and 9, and they have a lot of facts and figures in there. I found my own facts and figures to corroborate uh, some of their statements, but let's talk about child... Abduction. In the United States, a big case happened in 1979 in New York City when a six year old named Etten Pats asked to walk two blocks home to his apartment. And his parents let him go and he disappeared. They never saw or heard from him again. And this was something that was uh, very well known in New York City because it was on the evening news. The parents posted missing posters all over the neighborhood and the the child was never found. So that was something that very much lived on in the consciousness of people. And then in 1981 in Hollywood, Florida, a six-year-old named Adam Walsh was left alone by his mother in a Sears department store at an Atari kiosk with other boys who were playing video games and those boys got into some sort of a, a scuffle and they got kicked out of the store. So they, they kicked out Adam Walsh, who wasn't really with those other boys. Uh, they kicked them all out, and so he we went out to the curb in the parking lot, and he was picked, up. He was picked up by a drifter, a stranger, who murdered him. And uh, that was really a key moment in the subject of child abduction in America because John Walsh, the father, essentially made his life's purpose preventing this from ever happening to anyone else ever again. And so he created the Adam Walsh Child Resource Center. He got the United States government to establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in 1984. So that that initially happened in 1981. By 1984, we have a new government uh, center for missing and exploited children. In 1984, he also succeeded in a new strategy of putting children's pictures on milk cartons in homes and in 1988 he put out a made-for-TV movie called Adam that 38 million people watched and in 1988 he launched a show you may have heard of America's Most Wanted which uh, the purpose of it was to ask the public for uh, help in unsolved cases so by the early 1990s The program had spread. Photos of missing children were reproduced on grocery bags, billboards, pizza boxes, even utility bills. Norms changed, fears grew, and many parents came to believe that if they took their eyes off their children for an instant in any public venue, their kid might be snatched. It no longer felt safe to let kids roam around their neighborhoods unsupervised. So once again, the initial situation developed in 1979-1981, but the ripple effect was felt in the 90s in particular when a lot of crime really was reaching record high levels in this country. Anybody grow up in the 90s, spent some childhood there, at least a little bit of it? Yeah, so uh, this, this touches home for a lot of us in this room. This triggered a drastic reduction in freedom for many children and we get this culture of safetyism as a result, which we've mentioned before. Safetyism overestimates danger. It assumes, it assumes the worst will, ca- will happen, like a cow will fall off the cliff. Uh, that's assuming the worst case scenario. Generally, you know, animals, people, we steer away from the edge of the cliff. <laughs> um, and then uh, safetyism also is an attempt to eliminate all risk. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. I got these stats from the United States government. Uh, from I found this site with all this raw data on it. It was really uh, just delicious. It took me a while, but I, I made this myself in Excel. This is the the murder rate per 100,000 people from 1960 to 2016. And you can see that it is uh, something that really has a, a wave effect to it. It, it is like a, a bell curve, and in the middle it kind of peaks and then it comes back down. You can see that the uh, murder rate really went up, skyrocketed in fact, during the 60s and 70s and, it, and it, it fluctuated a little bit at the top there until the 90s. In the mid-90s the murder rate in this country uh, peaked and then plummeted and it has remained incredibly low uh, so that in 2013 the number was the lowest in you know, over 50 years. Likewise Violent crime, so including murder, but also other violent crimes per 100,000 people has this bell curve wave to it as well, where you can see in 1960, uh, violent crime is very low, uh, and then it peaks around, what is this, let's see, 1992 is when it peaks, and then uh, by 2016, we're, we're back at the same level as, what is that, 1970? So, the, the violent crime rate in the United States is roughly at 1970 levels today. If we look at total crime, the picture is even better. Total crime is going way down. So, once again, it went way up and it's, it's, it's peaking right around that 1992, between 1980 and 1992, total crime is really peaking in the United States. Now, it has dropped steadily year after year until we're, once again, at a rate around 1964, 1965, today. So what does that, what does that tell you? I mean, these are, these are facts. That's why I love them, because they're not like somebody's opinion on what happened. I can show you. It's, it's just a site full of raw numbers. So what does that tell you? It tells you that our society is safer than it was in the, when you were a kid growing up. It's safer now than it was then. That's interesting, right? Now, when we talk about child abductions, the FBI says that 99.8% of missing children cases come home. 99.8% the kid comes back home. The majority of abductions are by a biological parent without legal custody. That's the majority of abductions in the United States. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen, and it's not tragic. I'm not trying to minimize it. You know, it's it's a horrible thing, and it does happen. About 100 children per 70 million uh, in the United States. About 100 children a year. So, the chances are one in 700,000 uh, to be that a child could be ad- abducted by a stranger. Hate goes on to make the point. Nevertheless, the fear of crime did not diminish along with the crime rate and the new habits of fearful parenting seem to have become new national norms. American parenting is now wildly out of sync with the actual risk that strangers pose to children, which is why we get memes like this. I'm a wooden spoon, lead paint, no car seat, no seatbelt, no bike, helmet, bed of a pickup, riding garden hose drinking survivor. (laughs) And uh, everybody that grew up really before the 90s uh, says, yeah, oh, yeah, I never wore a seatbelt either and I'm still alive, right? Uh, so, uh, of course, we're not talking about those that, you know, those that died wouldn't be able to say that, right? So, um, now, look, some changes are helpful, right? I don't really care about the garden hose, but you know what? If you're in a car and you're not wearing a seatbelt, you know, you're just putting yourself in danger. There's no, like, benefit of getting in car crashes without a seatbelt. It's not like uh, my son with the phone, the story I mentioned before, where it built a little resilience in him. Getting messed up in a car wreck doesn't build resilience in you, okay? So there, there are certain safety uh, precautions that are in place now that are there for good reasons, and they help us, like car seats and, and uh, bike helmets and these kinds of things, right? Uh, but at the same time, We can go overboard as parents into what we call paranoid parenting. And that's where you are telling your kid, watch out for the falling cow. Because who knows? There are cows up there. There's a cliff. You know, don't walk near that cliff. The cow could fall on your head. That's too far. See what I'm saying? If you are a paranoid parent and and you are always uh, warning your children of fears and dangers, whether they are realistic or not, it teaches the kid certain things. What it teaches the kid is that the world is a scary place I cannot face alone. It teaches the kid that they're fragile in need of constant protection from an adult or an institution. This is something that they found on the college campuses from 2013 to 2017 in particular, is that the kids are overwhelmingly seeking institutional intervention to deal with their problems because they have no ability to deal with it among themselves. They, need, they, they really believe that only authority, uh, authoritative institutions can fix issues. People outside of my circle, if you uh, grow up in a paranoid situation, people outside of my circle of trusted adults are dangerous. I'm the center of the world. My emotions and needs determine reality, not those of my parents or others. I'm the most important person in the room that's one side of the story and what happens is that these kids uh, go off on their own and the one thing that they can't handle is failure because failure and danger are things that they they were prevented from experiencing because of the protection of their parents and they can't handle disagreement you know let's face it real adult life is full of annoyances And frustrations and failures and things you started and you never finished and those few things that you finish and you know a lot of times you found out it wasn't even worth it right you ever you ever do that you read a book and you're like I'm gonna finish this book and you push and you push and you push you get you keep thinking it's gonna get better and you get to the end of that book and you're just like wow I read this whole book and I should have stopped at page 50 you know and then there's other times where, you know, and, and you can't predict it, and that's life. Life is unpredictable and confusing, and you know what? you got to be tough. you got to be able to handle situations in life. But then there's the other side of the story. So that's one side of parenting, which I called paranoid parenting. Then you have the other side of parenting, which exposes kids to chronic stress, and that is where the parents are too busy, so they neglect kids and they expose the kids to too much instability, constantly moving from one place to another, or mom has a new boyfriend this week, or dad's uh, gone again. Uh, Because of a lack of supervision, they encounter sexual content, drugs, crime, etc. They experience chronic stresses that are toxic and can cause lasting damage rather than building resilience. Okay, So this is what I'm talking about. Getting a balance between these two things totally neglecting your kids like I'm free-range Like I just put them outside lock them out of the house. I let them in at the end of the day Okay, well if it's 30 degrees out, that's not a good parenting strategy Is it you know what they're doing? They're at their friend's house telling their parents about how crappy of a parent you are They're not growing stronger from that, but if you do it for an hour You say look get your coat on you know, you don't want your kid to get sick, right? But, and then you lock him out. You say, get out of here. You got an hour. Then you can come back. And don't go to your friend's house. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I'm not saying you do that specific thing, but my point is, in, in a balanced way, you can do things where you challenge your kids to face the hardship of no screens for an hour. You know, that's really suffering. Mm-hmm. But if, if you expose them to too much, then they can get uh, damaged. And there's such a thing as too much freedom, Kids need boundaries. They need to know where the the line is. And um, this is all part of the picture. So here's the big question. Let me uh, read this first. These kids leave the nest prickly. So if if you coddle your kids and you protect them from any danger ever happening, you know how they leave the nest? Soft. Unproven. Unable to cope with hardship. If you totally neglect or you abuse your kids, they leave the nest prickly. And they struggle to maintain relationships. They struggle with trust at work, with authority figures, with romantic partners, and eventually with their own kids as well. So, you know, I, this is fairly terrifying, this whole parenting thing, right? Uh, you, on the one hand, you don't want to produce a, a little soft belly child that can't handle anything. And on the other hand, you don't want to produce some... some uh, tough guy punk that's got no heart or it's turned to stone because you beat it out of him or something, right? You want somebody that has resilience and yet tenderness at the same time. Uh, so let's, let's see what the Bible has to say as far as some insight on this. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. The Bible doesn't really give you much about what the ancients did in parenting, does it? Children are not all that interesting in the ancient world. It's not just the Bible, but like really any ancient stuff. It just doesn't talk, like, who cares about kids? You look at the biography of Jesus, uh, you know, the Gospels, and the first part there, it, big deal about the birth. Well, what's the big deal about the birth? Was it Jesus? No, it's all about Mary. It's all about Joseph. It's all about Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? That's the exciting part about the, and the shepherds, you know, all the adults. <laughs> and then you get that one little snippet from Luke. Jesus was 12 and he didn't show up in the parents' caravan, and his parents are freaking out, and they're coming, where'd you go? You know, how could you... And Jesus is like, well, I had to be about my father's business. He's in the temple talking to the experts, right? That's the only snippet we get from the childhood of Jesus. You know how much we get about the childhood of John the Baptist? The childhood of Isaiah? The childhood of hardly any... basically everybody? (laughs) It's just... it wasn't, it wasn't uh, considered to be that, that much uh, what people were interested in. But there, there, there are a couple little snippets. And uh, one of those comes to us from David. So that's in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, and so some of this is a cultural difference uh, between our modern culture and the biblical culture, especially the Jewish culture. Uh, just to give you an idea here. A father's responsibilities. would you like to know what a father's responsibilities are from a Jewish perspective, ancient Jewish perspective? I think you'd get a kick out of this. This, this is from uh, Rabbi Victor Appel from reformjudaism.org. He says, a father's responsibilities to his son are outlined in the Talmud, Kedoshim 29a. According to the text, a father is obligated to, one, circumcise his son, that happens on the eighth day, to redeem him if he is his firstborn, which means uh, offering a sacrifice on his behalf. Um, Number three, to teach him Torah. Torah is just another name for the law, you know, how to live for God, that sort of thing, the commandments. And then to find him a wife and to teach him a trade. Talmudic scholars added that a father must also teach his son to swim. So that's it. You do that, you're done. None of this uh, navigating the complexities of a college application, (laughs) or having the foresight to uh, begin playing the tuba at 12 years old because it's an obscure instrument and it's likely to make you stand out among the applicants to the the prestigious schools that you're destined to go to, or volunteering on a regular basis to make you look more well-rounded. None of that. It's just, all right, you teach a kid how to do a job. You get him a wife, teach him how to swim. That's optional, but, you know, from the Talmud, they say you should do that. And it's not for, like, exercise. It's for survival. It's a basic survival skill, Learn, knowing how to swim. in case you fall in the water. You don't die. It's a simple list there, but there is, it's oddly balanced, you know, between this one right here, the, the business of teaching them what God wants them to do, and then teaching them the trade. It's a simpler world, isn't it? That's sort of like just priming you for the culture. Uh, Jesus gives an example of uh, free play, by the way. I found this. There's, like I said, there's not much about kids in the Bible. It's a lot about parenting, but not about kids. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling their play- to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So you, you can kind of extrapolate from the scene there that, in the marketplaces, which are outdoor places to buy groceries, uh, the, the kids would just be hanging around. And they'd be playing, and they'd be calling to each other, and messing around, and playing instruments, and, and complaining that they're not responding <laughs> the way they want them to. You know, so there, you know, there is a, a culture of free play here. But uh, what I really found and, and drew a lot of um, strength from is the example of David as a boy because he's one of the very few that we get any insight on from the Bible on this subject. So he was given shepherding responsibilities, and uh, what, is, what is shepherding? Like, what do you do during, like, say, all right, I'm going to go out shepherding today. You know, Yvonne's going to go shepherding. All right. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does that mean? What do you think it means? Responsible for die. Okay, so make sure they don't die. But, like, what are you actually doing? Yeah. Feed them and make sure they have enough food. I, I would say probably the majority of the day is, is spent something like this. You're watching the sheep. You know, it's not like they do much. They don't fight with each other. They don't build things. You know, they just, bah, right? I mean, they're just walking around doing nothing, right? Shepherding is long periods of downtime. You know, then you have the feeding, Right. And then there's the excitement. If danger comes in, you've got to scare the animals away, right? You get your stick out, maybe a sword, whatever you got, or a shofar, a horn, and you, you let, let the sound. You do whatever you can to protect those sheep. And this is uh, important work that David had that his family depended on. And uh, one day, uh, his dad... Uh, asked David to, he was probably a teenager, and he he asked him, hey, uh, go bring some breads and cheeses to the boys, to your brothers, your older brothers. They're over there at the battle. That's where I want to pick it up with you. 1 Samuel 17, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul Into the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn; the next to him, Abinadab; and the third, Shammah. Verse 14. David was the youngest, so he's the pipsqueak of the whole family. Seven older brothers. Geez. Good luck. And then, of course, the three oldest ones are there with Saul. There's a battle. There's some excitement, potential glory to be won, life to be lost. I mean, high stakes, right? This is battle. Verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David, at this point in his life, is working with, for Saul. He plays a musical instrument for Saul to calm, calm him down. And then he goes back home and he takes care of the sheep for his dad, who's very old. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand and morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, And carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Maybe just thinking about fighting with the Philistines. Verse 20, And David rose early in the morning. I mean, mind already blown. If this is a teenager... Think about this responsibility. The responsibility is take the, this uh, grain, these cheeses, and uh, whatever the other thing was, and I, I want you to bring them this distance, probably miles away. I want you to figure out how to get there. You know, there's no GPS, no smartphone. You, you know, you get over there. You can do that. And I want you to do this thing. I want you to speak. He expects his teenage son to speak to the commander of his oldest sons in such a way as to do something good, right? How many of you who have teens would want your teenager speaking to your other kids' bosses, you know, your adult kids' bosses? It would be terrifying because teens are notoriously disrespectful and uncouth and lack basic etiquette skills. But, they had, but there was an expectation that this boy could do the job, he was trained this way, he was parented this way, that he could go on a journey, he could bring the stuff, he could talk to the commander of his his oldest brothers, who were probably in their 30s at this point, even though David was probably a teenager, and that he would not screw it up, and he would be able to come home, and he would be okay. That's a lot of responsibility, right? All right, look at verse 18, or verse, where were we, 20. And David rose early in the morning and left, and there's no electronic alarm clock. I mean, it's just like, blow, I don't think I'm ever going to get past this verse. <laughs> David rose early in the morning, mind blown again, there it is, uh, and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as... The host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. There's nothing in the text here that makes a big deal out of David's behavior. There's nothing in the text here that says, "Oh, and David was unusually responsible for his age." So you know, it's just like this, this. not even this. None of this is even the point. The point is Goliath, all right? We're getting to the point. The fact is, he could be trusted to wake up early, do this journey, speak to this this person, get information from his brothers, and come home, and do also without uh, any any kind of checking in from his father. How many times did you text your... I mean, think about it. Let's say you give your teenager a five-mile walk, and you say, all right, I want you to wake up early. Just think about how ridiculous this would be for us. I want you to wake up early tomorrow morning, I want you to carry this heavy bag, I want you to walk five miles, I want you to talk to this important person who if you screw it up is really going to cause major problems for people that I love, and then I want you to return and report back accurately what's going on. Would you give your teenager that job? I think I think we have low expectations as parents. I, you know, like this is not like I said, this is not the point of this story. It's just like, yeah, yeah, he brought the cheeses. It wasn't a big deal. Verse twenty-three: As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, "Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel." And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine It takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, love this part. Eliab, his u- oldest brother, Heard that when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Just talking. What's the big deal, brother? Look how realistic this is, just like my kids. You know, like they, they just impugn on, on the, the older one just impugns on the younger one, ill intention. It's like, oh yeah, I know why you're really here. You're here to see the battle. Oh yes, yes, yes you are, I know you. You know how uh, siblings can be, right? And the young was like, what do I do, huh? I do not do anything. I was just talking, is it legal to talk? right? It's funny. All right, verse, uh, so anyhow, doing the math a little bit, you know, eight sons, if David's around 18, maybe a little younger, this guy could be, assuming a, a, a kid every year and a half, this guy would be about 30. Uh, depends on how Mrs. Jesse, how quick she was with these, with these eight kids, getting them out, uh, but <laughs> uh, could, the, the age range could be a little different, but if, just imagine that for a moment and a 17 year old and a 30 year old. Right? And the thirty year old is just like, What do you think? You don't know anything. You're such an idiot, like you're a teenager. Like I've my kids are your age. Not not quite, but you know what I mean? Like you have that mindset. I have friends who have kids your age. You know, that, that uh dynamic. Verse thirty and he turned away from him toward another, David did, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him, and David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Uh, Other translations, you're but a boy. You're just a kid. You 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 can't fight this guy. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. What? Saul, you're going to put the fate of the entire army, potentially the whole nation, in the hands of this kid? Yeah. And you know what? It was the right decision. Because this kid had something, and I'm not saying like every one of our kids is going to be the same as David in this situation, all right? I'm not trying to universalize it, but I am trying to draw lessons out for us here, and that is that Saul saw in this kid a rock-solid confidence that he did not see in himself or anyone else in his army. And it's like, well, that's better than nothing. I guess we'll go with that. Um, And Saul really believed that God was with David and trusted God to pull something off here. But there's certainly no coddling. There's no like, "Oh, David, you know, uh, let's let's see if we can get, you know, a whole group of people to surround you and protect you." No, it's like, "All right, you're, you you want to do this thing. You're sh- you sure?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm sure. God is God's going to take care of me." Like, I've already But you can see, it was because of his life experience that he had developed that confidence in God. It didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't a lightning bolt from the sky. It wasn't like, I suddenly find myself in this situation and God just zaps me with miraculous courage. No, it was something that had, had built in him over time. You know, I'm sure the first time an animal came and took one of the sheep away, he was scared. Right? And he probably had to get advice on what to do and they told him what to do. Bedouin people, shepherd people, they know how to deal with wild animals. They deal with them. And you make noise and you chase them off and, 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 if you, and you carry a sword and you do whatever he said right there. I mean this is their world. But that didn't come from nowhere. That came from training and I bet that training was supervised when he was young and vulnerable until he was able to handle it himself. But now we're seeing the fruit of that in somebody who is properly trained So that as a teenager, he's not looking at a a wild animal. He's looking at this Goliath. And he's thinking, David's thinking, who does Goliath think he is? Everyone else is thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. David's thinking, who does he think he is? We represent, we're the armies of the living God. Who is this uncircumcised, like who is he thinking, what kind of an idiot is this? He's going to challenge the armies of God? I'll take care of it. Verse 38, then Saul clothed, This is safety as I'm interrupting here. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go. Do you know what that means? He's loaded on with all this heavy metal, and he's trying to go. He can't go. He can't go. Of course, Saul's like the tallest guy in the kingdom. And uh, probably it was not the right size for David, whatever he <laughs> gave him. There's little David, you know, just like imagine a kid wearing his father's clothes and, and they're just drooping off him and except there's all this heavy metal and he's rattling around, he's got this big sword, he can't go. He tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. Yeah, that's it. I, I haven't tested these out. I can't go with them. So David put them off. So why do you think they put the armor on little David? Just to keep him safe, right? That's the purpose of armor? Right? But think about it for a moment. Let's say he's got all the armor on him, right? And he's trudging down. The the battle is going to be in a valley, okay? So you have the Philistines and the Israelites. So David's trudging down. You know, he's getting down to the bottom of the valley. And, uh, you know, he could trip and fall down, right? And that would be embarrassing. Or once he gets down there, you know, if Goliath hits him with the sword, well, maybe that metal will protect him a little bit. Okay? But what, it, what is the consequence of all that safety? He's got no mobility. no mobility, no speed. And what does he really need? We know what he needs. He needs to do this. He needs to whip that little stone around and do his shepherd best to take down this new lion. That's what he needs to do. And that all that safety is, what is it going to do? It's going to get him killed. Crazy, but it's, you know, it's true. All right, then he took his staff, verse 40, and his hand and chose five smooth stones, I guess in case he missed. He's not being uh, too assumptive here. From the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came to David and the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him he was but a youth. He was insulted. You're going to send him? Is that, is that what you're going to give me? Verse 42 again. He was uh, disdaining for you. He was a but, but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. You know, pink, he had pink cheeks. You know, This little shepherd boy. Verse 43. And he's not dressed like a warrior either. I mean, everything is like an insult to Goliath. You know, even like if you sent your biggest, baddest guy, it would still be an insult to Goliath. Because Goliath is bigger and badder, right? <laughs> Goliath can't believe what they are sending him. Verse 43, and the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? You know, he's got his little shepherd's staff in his hand. You know, he doesn't even have a sword. He's got his little staff. What, do you think I am, a dog? What, are you going to beat me with your stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. By the way, I always love to mention this whenever I talk about Goliath. There actually is a, a, a case from the year 1940, a man named Robert Wadlow, who grew to be 8 foot 11 inches. Look it up online. Uh, fascinating. Uh, Goliath was, uh, according to uh, most of the translations I've seen, a, a little over 9 feet, uh, and uh, some translations fudge on that a little bit uh, because they're like, oh, that's impossible. Well, we have a documented case of an 811 guy uh, within the last century. Uh, verse 44, the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So oh, that's nice. A little trash talk before the battle. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Trash talk back, right? And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this, all, this whole assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spirit, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into your hand. Where does this radical trust come from in David. It's something, once again, that he's cultivated. What's your job as a parent? To help our kids cultivate this trust. You know, the trust they have for you is automatic. You're the big person in their life. okay? But their trust for God is something that has to be cultivated. It has to, be, has to grow over time by giving them experiences where they, where they do need to trust on God themselves. And God pulls them out of situations. You know, when that bear came, if Jesse came out, every time the bear came after the sheep, and Jesse came and he shot it with a bow, would David ever learn to trust in God? No. That's a scary way to let that happen. Obviously, their situation, you know, culture and lifestyle is a little different than ours, right? But uh, the principle is still the same. You know, well, let me ask you this. Do you think the public school system taught David to trust in God? It came from his parents. It came from his parents, and it came from his own God experiences. That's where that trust came from. You want your, your, your daughter, your son, to be like this, to be, to be able to do heroic things in whatever field of life they happen to find themselves? Then this is, this is what, what needs to happen some way or another. Verse 48, and the Philistine arose and came near and drew to meet David. And David, and this is the craziest part of all, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. He he's not he's he drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, whatever he says, you know, he God in this, he believes it. He's going full bore. He's ready to do this, and you know the rest of the story, right? He puts his hand in. He whips that sling around and he, he he shoots that and it hits the Philistine and the Philistine falls down dead. David doesn't take any chances. He goes up to that Philistine. He stands next to him. He pulls out the Philistine sword, cuts off the head of the Philistine. Goliath takes that head in his hand goes back to Saul. Is this what you're looking for? No, I'm just... (laughs) He didn't really say that. But it says that, uh, like, after the whole battle, he was still there holding the head. (laughs) It was just like, look what I did. Okay, Uh, different time. Obviously, this is an extreme example, but it shows the major cultural differences of giving limited responsibility and then trusting and seeing that that can pay rich dividends as the child crosses the threshold into adulthood. We can see this pattern of God working with people as well. When God sends Moses to Pharaoh, Moses says, I can't do that. I'm not qualified. God says, what's that in your hand? He says, it's a staff. God says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, turns it into a snake. Whoa. God says, pick up the snake. Now we've got a moment of faith. We've got a crisis, right? And what does he do? He reaches down. Picks it up by that, and it turns back into a staff. God's just established something with Moses. You trust me, I got your back. And I'm God, I can do things like turn sticks into snakes. Right? And he works with them, and he works with them, and he's like, but, 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 I can't talk. All right, we'll give you Aaron. Aaron will talk. Right? And God works with him, works with him, and by the end of the day, Moses is a great man. He's not a great man because he was eloquent of speech or courageous He's great because he he trusted in God, and God got him to that place. So that's what we want to do as parents, is to equip our children for life, real life. Help them to rely on God more than us and commission them. And then, of course, remain available to advise. You know, once the kids are out of the house, it doesn't mean like we cut ties and we never talk to them again, right? Uh, We want to be available to advise our our children. And so this, this all begins, let's just make it real This all begins with little things. You give your child the responsibility, I want you to clear the table and wipe it. We just went through this the other night, right, dear? I want you to clear the table. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, oh, that's two jobs. I already set the table. Oh. My brothers don't have to do it. Seriously, like that's a, that's a, a tamed down version of what we what what happened when we asked one of our kids to do that, right? I already set the table. How could I possibly clear it too? And they clear it, then they disappear and they go play on the screen. And it's like, whoa, you didn't wipe the table. Uh, yeah, in a minute, Dad. In a minute. You got You got to fight that fight. We have to teach them that responsibility. And it starts at the, young, it starts at the younger ages. I, what blew my mind about those sheets in the back about the different chores and ages and stuff is how young they start the kids on these different things. It's like not nine months to 24 months. They already got the kid helping uh, with putting stuff away, with uh, some, some basic kitchen stuff. You know, obviously all very, very supervised. <laughs> uh, you know, you're not having the, the, the kid put away your fine china right? <laughs> I mean, you know, use wisdom. All right, let's say you succeed, you get the kid to clear the table. You, well, first of all, you have to show him or her how to do it, and then you do it together, and then they do it on their own, and then as time moves on, you make a schedule. You're like, all right, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're on table duty. That's your job. Now, look, this is when you find out if they're, if they're ready for that responsibility or if, or if they need more training you don't tell them to do it. You wait till the next day when it's their turn and you don't tell them to do it. You already agree with them that if it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's their job, so they should know. So now you don't tell them. And you tell them up front there's gonna be a consequence and you you make everything clear. You make everything clear. That's what they love is the boundaries. All right, it's your job, just so you know. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're gonna clear the table, you're gonna wipe the table. And if not, you get no screen time for the rest of the night. And I'm not going to tell you to do it. You're just going to do it. You got that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can can do it. It's not fair, but I can do it. I can do it. (laughs) All right. Well, that's that's our arrangement. You understand it? Okay. All right. You know that Wednesday happens every week, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. So then Wednesday comes, and you know what the kid does? Nothing. So then what do you do as a parent? You go down, you get the kid, and you say, look, you didn't do the job. So now you have no screen time for the rest of, your, rest of the night. Let me have your device or whatever, whatever it is. You know, you, kids are all different ages. They're into different things. You know, they're, 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 you know, maybe it's just no dessert and they have to sit there and watch their sibling eat dessert. <laughs> but look, if this is motivated in true love, how else are we going to train them if they don't learn this responsibility? And then, all right, now they do it, you praise them to the ceiling. Oh, who cleared this table? Did you see? You start talking to the other siblings. Did you see your brother? I didn't even ask him. He just figured it out. Right? And now it's like, yeah, I'm, I can. Right? I mean, this is, this is not rocket science. In, in your bones, you already know what you have to do with your kids. But we get weary, don't we? And we get sucked in, like Marianne shared, into the whole back and forth fight with each other. And it's like, Uh, before you know it, you're you're justifying and you're arguing. No, 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 no. This is is the rule. This is the consequence. We're not going to talk about it. This is not a debate. I'm the parent. You're the child. This is the rule. This is the consequence. By arguing, you get the consequence. So, and it's not to be mean. It's not to be harsh. It's to to help them be able to handle the responsibilities that they need at an age-appropriate time in their life. All right, let me just wind things down here. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little, this is Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. That's the whole principle of parenting right there. You give your kids just a little bit until they can master that, and then you give them a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and it's not about making your life easier. It's about them being responsible and independent. Because in the end, they got to, they're going to have to live whether you do a good job or not. Uh, they're just going to be a, a pain to everyone else. Uh, and one who is dishonest and a very little is dishonest so much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, it's like the basic things of life, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have been faithful, this is where we want to be, if you have not been faithful in that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? The way we want to be is we want to be faithful with the little that we're given. And we want our kids to be faithful for the little they be given, and then they get more. So here's, here's my conclusion. If you do everything for your kids, that's not loving. It's just not loving. Uh, it, and, and, and if you are neglecting your kids or physically or, or emotionally, whatever, abusing your kids, we already know that's not loving, right? The loving thing is to give them the balance between that oversight because they need oversight, they're like half-cooked muffins, you know? I mean, you can't expect them to do everything on their own, right? They're half-baked. You know, it takes time for them to get fully cooked. So you, you do need, they do need oversight, but they also need independence. And, and that's something that grows over time. I think you get my point. If your kid leaves your house and they can't handle the basics of life, you know who's failed? You failed. You have failed. So we want our kids to handle the basics of life, to be able to do their laundry. I'm talking like by the time they're going off to college, okay, so don't think I'm being crazy here. But if they go off to college and they don't know how to do laundry, you know what happens? They smell. (laughs) If they go off to college and they don't know how to cook food for themselves, you know what happens? They eat fast food. You ever heard of the expression freshman 15? You get all this extra weight because you don't know what you're doing. And so it's not loving. The loving thing is to train them so that they can leave the nest prepared. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. Uh, Just to let you know, we do have another panel discussion that's available. You can check the show notes for that. That'll be a YouTube video. And if you haven't yet, please check out the other episodes in this parenting series. I think there's some really helpful information from a variety of speakers here that will honestly make you a better parent. Last of all, I wanted to let you know about our next series. It's going to be a class on how we got the Bible. And what we're going to be looking at is transmission and translation. How was the Bible preserved century after century for the Old Testament or for the New Testament in the Hebrew and for the Greek? We're going to look at the whole subject of manuscripts and the field of comparing manuscripts to each other to figure out which is is more likely to be the original reading for a particular verse. Uh, We're going to look at translation philosophy and bias and really just figure out how is it we get our English Bibles and what do you need to know to develop a trained eye so that you can pick out any issues that are in the Bible and get to a more accurate understanding of what the original prophets and apostles wrote. So that's going to be starting up next week. In order to keep pace with the YouTube release of this class, uh, which is going to be twice a week, I'm going to have to shift Restitutio a little bit. Uh, The YouTubes are going to be coming out on the Living Hope International Ministries YouTube channel, and then uh, I'm going to synchronize those, hopefully, with Resitudio on the same day. So I'm thinking right now the publishing schedule will be something like Tuesday, Saturday. Traditionally, I release these episodes Thursday evening. My thinking with that is just in case you have a trip to go to on Friday that you would have some material for the road, Uh, but of course these days everyone's trips are still canceled. Uh, but anyhow, Tuesday, Saturday is going to be the schedule, and uh, I'll see if I can keep up with that. I'm not sure exactly how many episodes long this is going to be, but it is going to be like a proper length class. Um, you could check out the research paper that really is lying underneath all this already. It's under articles on Uh but I'm actually going to be filling in even more material than I had, than I used in that in that essay. So I hope you're interested in the Bible and I hope you're curious about where it came from and learning the stories of discovery from the Masoretic text to the Dead Sea Scrolls, to the great new Testament codices and uh, everything in between. So stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for tuning in. If you would like to support Restitudio, you can do that at Restitudio.org. and remember the truth has nothing to fear.